0: I heard a story about a cruise ship that was out in the Caribbean and they were happening to pass by some several small islands and so a lot of the passengers had gathered up on the top deck to kind of look and see what the islands were all about and as they were looking and, 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 and seeing the islands in the distance there on one particular island they saw a man and he was on the edge of the shore and he looked ragged and, and, and his clothes looked filthy and he had a long flowing beard and his, his hair was long and scraggly. And, and he was jumping up and down and waving his arms frantically and he seemed to be yelling something at the ship as they passed by. And so one of the passengers quickly went and got the captain and told him what was going on and said, you need to see this And the passenger said to the captain, do, do, you, do you see that man who's out there on the island waving his arms frantically and yelling and jumping up and down? And the captain said, yeah, I, I see him. You know, every time we uh, pass by that island, that guy just starts going nuts and jumping up and down and yelling and waving his arms. And for the life of me, I just can't figure out why he's so upset. Have you ever had someone, or maybe you've been someone, uh, who just doesn't get the point, just doesn't get the message? Well, we're going to look at one of those people this morning. For the past several weeks, we've been in a series of lessons called When God Asks the Questions. And really, we're, you know, a lot of times we have questions for God, obviously. People as human beings, we have questions for God. But what happens when God asks the questions? And what can we learn from those questions that God asks of us? And so that's what we've been looking at over the past several weeks. And today we're going to look at the only book in the Bible that actually ends with God asking a question. Where God ends the book with God asking a question. So we pick up our story with a man by the name of Jonah, which I'm sure most of you know pretty well. And Jonah is, at this point where we're going to pick it up, sitting in the gastrointestinal tract of a big fish. Jonah chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. To which I say, yep, I bet he did. And after Jonah's pleading with God, verse 10 of that same chapter says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Which brings us to Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4. They're only 10 verses and 11 verses long, so bear with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Hang on to that phrase. We'll come back to that. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, sprang up overnight and died overnight. And here's the question. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And I love this part. And also many animals. Probably not including cats, but many animals aside. You know I got to throw that in there. (laughs) Do you know or did you know that the name Jonah means dove? what the name of Jonah means. Dove is very common or very well-known biblical symbol. Do you know what the dove symbol of a dove means or what it stands for? It stands for peace. And yet the irony is that the last thing Jonah wanted to see was peace between God and Nineveh. That's why he didn't go to Nineveh the first time, which is what really the first chapter of Jonah is all about. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, which was southeast of where Jonah was at the time. Jonah instead buys a one-way ticket uh, to a place called Tarshish, which is northwest of where Jonah was at the time. And so Jonah goes 180 degrees in the opposite direction of where God had called him to go. And so God sends him a big fishogram to help Jonah reconsider, and that's where we picked up our story with Jonah in the belly of that big fish doing just that reconsidering. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians were the big, bad bullies on the block at that time. They were crude, rebellious, violent, and volatile people who threatened to do to Israel much like what the Egyptians had done to Israel in Moses's day. And the fact that the city of Nineveh was so wicked, it really was so wicked, was all the more reason that God should destroy them, at least in Jonah's opinion. Now, Jonah may be the most unusual preacher of all time. He actually becomes angry Because so many people respond to his message in a positive way. He preaches what is quite possibly the most effective and efficient evangelistic message in the history of mankind. It was supposed to take him three days to get through Nineveh and to uh, deliver this message because it was such a large city. But he gets started on the first day going into Nineveh. And on that first day, the entire city responds. His sermon is all of eight words long, which I'm sure some of you would be jealous that my sermons aren't eight words long. Uh, They're going to be a little bit longer, but eight words long, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned or destroyed. He offers no invitation in regard to what people should do in response to the message. He doesn't talk to them about the possibility of being made right with God. In fact, he doesn't even ask the people to respond to the message. He just gives them a message. That's it. Jonah delivers this message of judgment, and yet 120,000 people respond. The whole city breaks out in fasting and repentance, and I love what the king of Nineveh says. It's a wicked city. I love what he says. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? I'll tell you who knows. Jonah knows. Jonah knows all too well God's compassion and mercy. And things went just about as Jonah feared they would. When God saw that they were repentant, what they did and how their hearts had changed and they turned from their evil ways, the Bible says he had compassion on them and didn't bring on them the destruction that he had threatened and so Jonah basically stomps out of Nineveh stomps out of Nineveh because that's exactly what he was afraid would happen he knew God well enough to know how God treats a repentant person no matter how great their sin and wickedness is Jonah says is this not what I said when I was still at home this is what I said would happen that's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's like the worst non insult I've ever heard in my life. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. <clears throat> Jonah resented the vast scope of God's mercy and compassion so much so that he decided that if the Ninevites were going to be in on the love of God then he was ready to check out a planet earth his name means dove and yet Jonah really has the personality profile of more like a hawk not only does Jonah not want to see peace between God and Nineveh but Jonah doesn't even have peace himself now the story of Jonah is really divided into two different parts we looked at Job last week, which is really divided into two different levels, two different realms that the story takes place on. And, and the story of Jonah is, is similar in some ways, that it takes place in, in, in two different aspects. The first couple chapters and, and then the, the next couple of chapters. The first two chapters really deal with the disobedience of Jonah. The next two chapters deal with the uh, obedience of Jonah. And both times, Jonah fails In the first two chapters, you've got Jonah uh, trying to avoid God's call. And in the last two chapters, we see Jonah showing that he was devoid of God's heart. We never really see a successful Jonah. In fact, Jonah seems in some ways worse in his disobedience than he even is in his, or excuse me, worse in his obedience than he even is in his disobedience. Because although he went to Nineveh, he didn't have a heart for Nineveh. He may have finally preached in response to the command of God, but his spirit and his anger flew in the face of the very nature of God. And Jonah's story really has no proper ending. We never find out how Jonah responds to God's uh, final question. We don't know if Jonah just sat there sulking because his plant died and because he doesn't get his way Or if he maybe had a change of heart and and, and kind of had a, a, a newfound realization from this revelation from God. Again, it's the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. With God asking a question. Should I not have concern? Should I not be concerned about this great city, Jonah? How will Jonah answer? How will he respond? We don't know. I wonder if perhaps because God is just as concerned with how we, as the readers, will respond to the question. And God's question, should I not have concern, prompts me to ask a couple of questions of myself, and I'm going to ask them of you to think about this morning. The first question is this, what's my Nineveh? Or who is my Nineveh, I should say. Who is my Nineveh? Who is your Nineveh? could be a person, could be a group of people that you have harsh feelings towards or resentment towards for one reason or another. I, I like a quote, I don't know if it's good to like this, but it, it, it makes sense. Uh, someone once said, hanging on to resentment is like letting someone you despise live rent-free in your head. And like Jonah, I suppose we all know what it is to let Nineveh, live rent-free in our heads. They may not even know they're living there, but we've got them living there in our heads. We all know what it is to have some space taken up in our heads with resentment and revenge we'd like to see happen to our Ninevehs. There's a popular gaming application on smartphones, iPhones, and... and, uh, android devices that is called pocket god i don't know if some of you have played that or or seen that game basically it's a game that enables you to be the god of your own remote island little g by the way but the god of your own remote island and with the touch of a finger you can make volcanoes erupt you can send lightning you can flick inhabitants off of your island and into the sea at your beck and call other gaming options include dropping inhabitants into the volcano itself don't just make it erupt, but you actually drop them into it so they don't even get a chance to flee, you know. It seems very nice uh, to do, end it quickly, I guess. Uh, You can pick up inhabitants and use them as shark bait, and you can also set them up as bowling pins and bowl them over with boulders. All this sounds really nice, doesn't it? Um, And the makers are constantly coming out with new ideas, you know, of of, of doing things to your uh, inhabitants, giving you more power. And I wonder why, and we... In some ways, we we can laugh at it. But I wonder why is it that most of the powers on that game have something to do with violence and harming the inhabitants. I I wonder if it's not because it doesn't appeal to our human nature when it comes to what we do with power. What we do when we have power in our grasp. We tend to use power. We, we, We don't like to think of it this way, but we do. We tend to use power... To protect ourselves, and to punish others, particularly our Nineveh. How much do you think Jonah wished he had a pocket God when it came to Nineveh? That he had God in his pocket when it came to his Nineveh, but he didn't. And newsflash: neither do you or I. Now, on one hand, Jonah is kind of a humor. I don't know if "humorous" is the right word for it, but it's kind of a weird humorous story if all you think about it is just this grown man getting swallowed by a big fish and then getting vomited out like that's a a, kind of an interesting picture to kind of visualize but it's a lot more sobering if you consider if the spirit of Jonah is inside of you and that's getting vomited out And, and Jonah being a prophet and a servant of God is 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 rather convicting to me because it cautions me to remember that resentment and hatred can set up shop even in hearts that appear to be the most respectable and faithful servants of God. And unfortunately, the world is full of Jonahs, and churches are full of Jonahs waiting for God to come around to their way of thinking. While God waits for a world full of Jonahs to come around to His way of thinking. So again, I ask you, who's your Nineveh? Second question is this. What's my vine? What's your vine? When we get to Jonah chapter 4, it's not a long book, but there's a lot power packed into it. When we get to Jonah 4, Jonah is upset. He is angry. He is sulking, but not just about the fact that God isn't going to destroy Nineveh. No, he is complaining over the fact that a Plant has died that gave him some some shade. Now, as much as I'd like to condemn Jonah for his rather complaining attitude, I can't say that I haven't been in similar spots. It may not be a plant that gave me some shade, but I guarantee you, when I look at the list of the things that I've complained about, I don't know if I'd be so proud to share them with all of you, and I'm guessing that you have your own list of things. He gets so upset about losing this plant, and yet he never loses any sleep over the lostness of 120,000 people. Maybe you don't necessarily have a Nineveh in your life, although my guess is that we do. But every single one of us has a vine. Every single one of us have vines in our lives. So what's yours? What is it in this world that you're so preoccupied with gaining or losing that it's been a while since you shed any tears or lost any sleep or carried a burden for greater things, bigger things, more important things? What are the vines that you cry over? What are the things that keep you from being passionately consumed with the things that God is passionate about? Even think about the things this morning that we're concerned about. Think about the things this afternoon we're going to be concerned about. And then you start ranking them. How does that rank on the things that God is passionate and concerned about? In the late 1800s, William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, was living in downtown London, and his grown son lived right next door to him. And early one morning, two or three in the morning, Booth, Booth's son was up with his new baby boy, and he looked out his baby's bedroom window to see that his his father's house right next door had the living room light on. And he could see that his father was, was in the living room. And so William Booth's son picked up his baby and went over to his dad's house to just kind of check and make sure everything was all right. And when he got there, Booth was sitting in a chair at the table with his head and his hands just weeping. And his son asked him, Dad, is Is everything okay? Are you all right? And Booth lifted up his head and he replied, no, everything is not all right. What are the people in this city going to do with their sin? That's a very poignant question to me. Because I'm not even sure I've asked that question enough, even regardless of of, of even if I've gotten that far to being passionately sorrowful about it. And I don't know about you, but when I read the story of Jonah, it reminds me that I need to be a little less like Jonah and a lot more like William Booth. Because there are times in my life where I'm so preoccupied with the vines and things that are just trivial in the end. I mean, yesterday, I'm, we're, we're going to uh, Maley's dance recital, and many of you know I'm a big sports fan, so I'm watching Arkansas play, and and uh, I tell you this story it's a lot easier to deal with it because they won so I'm, you know but but you know we're, we're having a conversation and my mom and I and my parents are in town, and, and one of the things we were talking about is just it doesn't really matter in the end, the score of a, a football game to, and how much time do I spend fretting over am I going to win or lose? How much time do we spend fretting over these things that just in the end don't matter? I'm not saying they, they can't matter some but we we get upset over things that are just trivial. I, I lose more sleep over, over those vines in my life than I do the greater things of God. I hit my pillow at night and I don't even think about the greater things of God because I'm so consumed with the vines in my life. What about you? And so God's question to Jonah provokes me to ask: not just who's my Nineveh, but what are my vines? What are my vines? But along with those two questions, God's question also provokes me to some realizations about God. I'll give you three this morning, and then the lesson's yours. First, sometimes God sends us on a mission so we will get the message. So that we will get the message. Jonah's mission was as much about Jonah as it was about Nineveh. Now, God still considered Nineveh to be very important, but it was also about what Jonah and the message that he would receive. Nineveh needed a chance to repent, but so did Jonah. And Jonah was sent to deliver a message, but he left having received a message of his own. God uses Jonah to bring this message to Nineveh. And God uses Nineveh to bring a message to Jonah. And sometimes God will call you to a particular mission A particular calling, not just because you can help speak truth and life and grace into a situation or into a person's life, but because maybe that person also needs to speak some truth and grace and mercy into your life. And God can do both because he's that powerful. Secondly, while God is a deliverer, God is definitely a deliverer, he will not deliver you from his call to obedience. I, I, I need to hear this, you know, because sometimes we, we think that you know, we, we firmly know God is a deliverer. He delivers us from, 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 from sins, from our failures, from all of those things. God never delivers us from his call to do what he has called us to do. I, I love what Jonah chapter 3 verse 1 says. It's not going to be up on the screen, but you can, you can go back to it. And I'm going to read it anyways. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah does not end in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah gets called in chapter 1 to go and preach this message to Nineveh. He disobeys. He goes in the opposite direction. God sends a big fish to come and swallow him. Jonah prays. He he says, okay, I'll do it. Jonah gets spit out on the shore, and the book ends, right? No. Chapter 3 comes along. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I don't care if you've been swallowed by a fish. I don't care if you've got fish guts all over you. It's time to go do what I called you to do. God doesn't just save Jonah from drowning at the hands of an angry sea and depositing him in this big fish Then having the big fish Jonah vomit him onto on dry land just so Jonah can be turned loose from God's call. No, Jonah literally gets spit right back out to face God's call for him. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Vehicles and high chairs aren't the only things that get recalled. So do people. As one person said, I, I love this, the beautiful thing about God's tests is that when you fail them, the good news is you get to take them again. Now, I guess you could also look at that as a bad thing because <laughs> you've got to take it again. But it, it's, it's good news that you and I get to take that test again. God does not deliver us from obedience. He delivers us from sin. And the question is, when you get recalled, how will you respond to that recall? Because how you responded the first time is yesterday. And you're in today, and today is not yesterday. So how will you respond today? Because while God has delivered you from sin, He has not delivered you from a call to obedience. And then here's the last thing right along with that. Our disobedience in the past will not disqualify us from from being used by God in the present. What you've done in the past... However you've failed, however you've come up short, will not disqualify you from God using you in the present. And I know some of you need to hear that. Because you feel like you've stepped away, you've done something. How can God, how can I get past this? And maybe you not only need to allow God to forgive you, but need to forgive yourself. But the good news is, in fact the great news is, that that doesn't disqualify you from being used by God in the present. What a grace to know that the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God still wanted something to do with Jonah even though Jonah didn't want a whole lot to do with God the first time around. Just because you've rebelled against God in the past doesn't mean that you can't re- represent him in the present. Your disobedience does not disqualify you from being used by him and that is such good news. I don't know how many of you know the name Roy Regals. Regals was a football player for the California, University of California back in the 1920s, in the late 1920s. In 1929, Regal and the California Bears football team were playing in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day against Georgia Tech. And in the midst of the game, Regal's who was a team captain amongst the most popular players on the team and one of the better players on the team, recovered a fumble, which is good news. He picked up the fumble. Still good news. Began to run. Still good news. Ran in the opposite direction. Not good news. So he picked up the fumble and ran in the opposite direction. His goal to score a touchdown is down here. He ran towards the opposite goal line, the opposite end zone. He got turned around and went in the opposite direction. One of his teammates, a guy by the name of Billy, Benny Lom, started to run after him and thankfully was faster than Regals, chased him down and tackled him on the one-yard line, their own one-yard line, before he went into the end zone. California, now with the ball backed up on their one-yard line, came out, ran three very unsuccessful plays, and had to punt. And Georgia Tech sent an all-out blitz and blocked the punt, and it flew back out of the end zone for safety just before halftime of the game. Players filed off the field, went back to the locker room, and we, Regals was in the corner of the locker room, away from everybody else, just a towel over his head. He was absolutely distraught. California's coach, Nibs Price, came in to speak to the team and talk about halftime adjustments, and when he was done, all the players began to file out, obviously to go back on, out on the field, everyone except for Regal's. He didn't budge. And so Coach Price went over to him and, and Regal said, Coach, I, I, I can't do it. He's almost in tears at this point. You know, big, strong football player, almost in tears. He said, Coach, I can't do it. I, I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California. I couldn't face that crowd to save my life. And Coach Price responded by saying, and I can only imagine, imagine it being said in just this such matter-of-fact way. He says, Roy, get up and go back out there. The game's only half over. It's only half over. Regals got up, went back off the field, and he played his heart out in that second half, turning in one of the best games of his career, no doubt inspired and energized by the reality that he had gotten a second chance. And as long as there is breath in you, there is still time for a second chance. Today, Roy Regals is known as Roy, this is hard to say, Roy Wrong Way Regals. (laughs) That is his nickname. But my guess is that he's not the only one who could fit that nickname. Maybe not on the football field, but in life. The fact is that we all know what it is To be told to go in one way, one direction by God, and we go in the opposite direction. We all could be nicknamed wrong way. But the good news is that there is a way for all of us to go when we've gone the wrong way. And that is the way, Jesus Christ. And because of him, there really can be a second half. Because of him, we really can start again. And because of him, here's the even better news, we can help others start again too. So one last question for you. Do you get the message? I hope you do.